Thanks, Colin. Cool. Well, there's a couple of really key areas that you have worked in for a number of years, you have a lot of expertise in, and I really want to touch on a few of these, in particular things around collaboration, partnership working, innovation, and a little bit of kind of disruption and what the future looks like, and, and we'll touch on a few things that are specific to your sector. So, um, first of all, you've obviously spent a large part of your career being responsible for building and maintaining partnerships on a global scale, and some of them have been obviously significant financial deals. So thinking about the sort of evolution of the digital space, how has this changed your role? And, you know, golf, obviously, it used to be a lot of handshakes, whereas now the communication barriers have been broken down somewhat and behaviours are changing. Uh, the skills and characteristics that were important for you maybe 10 years ago, are these still the most essential skills for a role like yours today? Um, well, that's a, you know, it's a really good question because I think we're all trying to work out um, or have been trying to work out in this last sort of 15 months or so, you know, different ways of doing the business that we've traditionally been doing. And yes, I, you know, I've spent the last 22 years with Toro traveling, you know, the world and building relationships, uh, which some of which have been um, through that whole two decades, you know, and I've been very lucky to have built relationships both with individuals and organizations um, over that time, you know, bringing a, a level of continuity for both organizations, which has really been beneficial. And you can never substitute that personal contact to build long lasting relationships. The danger with, if you go out there and try and do it quickly, or if, if we want to use the term efficiently, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what we're all looking for productivity efficiently, is that you actually miss things and you don't build the depth of the relationship. So, you know, the technology that we're using today, you know, we're using Zoom this morning. I use Teams a lot. And, you know, my day will often be five or six separate, um, you know, online digital meetings uh, like this. You know, you can be very efficient and you can get through a lot of meetings very quickly and you can cover a lot of time zones. The concern to me is, are you really getting true value out of those meetings or are you just trying to get them done? you know, and mm -hmm. sort of tick a few boxes and move things forward? Um, and do you end up actually having to have multiple meetings to achieve what you might have been able to do if you were able to sit face to face and really get into the detail? So there is a there is a risk. There's no doubt that we've had to make that shift for obvious reasons. And there's no doubt that we will not go back to just doing it the old way. You know, and in fact, one of the conversations I'm having internally at the moment is how do we move into, how do we move it on again from just purely using Teams to do whether it be online training or whether it be just sort of dealing with um, customer issues or stuff like that, can we get into a different type of technology which will give us something else? And that's virtual reality. How can we use virtual reality to enhance the experience, if you like, for our customers, for our distributors, and even for our own staff? So that's, I think that's an interesting space which we'll see more of going forward and that technology is moving a pace as well because of what we've gone through in this last 15 months. Um, and from a, just a personal perspective, then, you know, maybe if you can think back 20 years ago, what are the skills that you think you've had to develop in the more recent years that maybe weren't quite so important for you way back then? Is, is there new areas that you've had to sort of learn other than just learning about you know, te technology as we all have to do on a very frequent basis at the moment? Um, yeah, well, yes, because, you know, when I first started, you know, and I was not in the golf industry space originally when I came to Toro, I was an irrigation engineer. I'd worked in 
both for our government in the Middle East. And I'd also run my own contracting and, and design business. And, and so things I had done things differently and had not experienced the, the golf world. And mm. the first thing that I learned very quickly in the golf world, particularly from Toro's perspective, were the very, very strong relationships that were there with the greenkeepers. You know, the greenkeepers are obviously the key people for us. They use our products. Their teams use our products. If they're not happy, nobody's happy. So building relationships at that level was always really key for Toro. But over the course of the last 10 years, you know, particularly, in fact, if you go back to the probably the financial crisis, was if you take that as a line, things change very quickly at that point where suddenly the whole financial piece for a club or for an organization became it became so important managing budgets planning investments understanding how to invest in their own their own businesses became so important that the decision making moved away from just purely the greenkeeper's preference or desire or wish list so we had to start talking the language of the finance director you know the chairman you know the owner the, the investor, uh, they, these people who do not have the same level of, you know, brand loyalty, commitment that, that the greenkeepers may have had. And so that type of the type of relationship that we had to build was um, and are still building today has changed somewhat. And interestingly, there are some people that make that switch very comfortably. You know, some of the sales teams, some of the distributors, even some of our own staff feel very comfortable having those conversations, others less so. You know, and so it's important that we recognize that and we give the right level of training and support to those that are more comfortable in the in the maintenance facility than they are maybe in the boardroom. I had never thought about that before, but I can see exactly how that's happened, particularly when you look at the, I guess, the professionalization of club managers as well, directors of golf, that kind of level, you know, they're taking more involvement in a lot of those areas. So, no, that, well, that's, a, yeah, that's actually very important as well, because part of that conversation that we've had to have with them is helping them understand an area of the business that they've had less to do with in the past. So we've all, you know, in some of the relationships that we've, you know, we've been a key supporter of the club managers of Europe, Golf Club Managers Association in the UK, um, and, and a number of other organizations across Europe. And the reason we do that is because we think it's important that we get to their members and help them understand this part of the business. You know, because if they're making key decisions that are impacting the golf operation, the golf course itself, they need to understand what their financial head, how that impacts the, the practicalities. So that's been really interesting. And I've done, you know, I've been involved in a lot of that and sort of been the, 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 the link with those organizations. So I've done a lot of sort of seminars and spoke at conferences and just been at their events and helped, it helped me understand where they're coming from, understand the challenges that they've got. But at the same time, it's helped me explain how they need to be thinking about that area of the business and maybe helping them understand the questions that they need to be asking their greenkeepers so that when they sit in front of their board, they can either justify and support or, uh, you know, the original idea of the greenkeeper or indeed come up with alternatives that allow the club to achieve what it's trying to do. What would you say is the number one challenge that you currently face? when you're thinking about your partnership working stroke collaboration? Well, there are two or three things that are always challenging. One is making sure that both parties in the partnership understand and are on the same page about what they're trying to achieve from the partnership. 
you know, it's, it, partnerships have changed over time. The type of partnership that we're building today is not necessarily the same as it was, you know, 10 years ago. A lot of partnerships or a club might come to us and say, we'd like to partner with Toro or with our distributor um, or organizations might. And, it's and it was purely from a transactional perspective. They wanted better price. They wanted to make a commitment, but they wanted better pricing. You know, they want to they want to get more for less, but they want to, you know, buy, and in return for a commitment to to work with with our brand. Listen, that, that's perfectly understandable, and and you know, we we encourage that conversation, but we try to move it beyond that because you know we're not really interested in just selling you a product. You know that you as a club, if you were looking to buy one of our machines, you know you've got options out there and we know that you know and we're not the cheapest we're usually the more expensive end of the of the brand of the, of the spectrum but we believe we can offer something in addition to just that pure product not only will the product do what we want it to do and probably do it better than most we hope there's something else that we can bring to the relationship which will make them feel comfortable and we don't just want it for the first time around we want to repeat it for multiple years and and so one of the things i suppose i'm most proud about is that the majority of the relationships that we've been involved with in Europe specifically over the 20 years I've been I've been here is that we've maintained them throughout that time and we still have those relationships today. Yes, occasionally one or two will move away, change of ownership, change of thinking, but hopefully our aim would be to bring them back again when they see, you know, what maybe they're not getting anymore. So, you know, that long longevity is really important. But the challenge then is once you've got sometimes getting the deal and getting the partnership is is the easy bit you know without you know not that it is always easy but it, but once you've got it it's not the end of the story and and the danger is that a salesman or even an organization will say okay great tick the box got that one done let's move on and you forget how much you have to give to that relationship to get the most out of it and to fulfill the commitments that you made together uh, which was the background and the and the, the foundation of of the partnership and, and what you want to get out of it so putting the right amount of resources into the partnership to get the most out of it is probably the biggest challenge for most organizations do you think that's such a big challenge because yeah i mean you really have to plan for that i mean you're you're essentially planning to resource something sometimes it's really easy just to forget about that planning part i mean it's it's actually a lesson that we're probably learning with Gather, to be honest, even in these early stages as well. A lot of it has been about awareness that we're trying to grow this community and give people opportunities to do things. But as it grows, our resources get stretched for the things that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that have been in there since the beginning. We want to make sure that they're still getting the value that they thought they might get. Well, that, you know, that, that's hard because, you know, we, you don't really factor in like, OK, well, now you've got some people on board. How do you make sure you resource them plus keep resourcing the marketing for new people coming on board. And of course, that's the same issue that a golf club itself has. You know, how do you make sure that you're still satisfying the members that have been there for 20 years whilst attracting new members or new guests and new visitors with something slightly different, you know, and, and how do you get that balance? And, and it's exactly the same with us. And, you know, also it's, it's, it's about ensuring that your own colleagues throughout the organization understand what this partnership means to us, to us as a company what we've committed to and what their part is in that because it's not all about you know the sales team do their bit initially the marketing team support it obviously initially as well 
But after that, there are many, many other elements of our organization that have to step up and deliver in key areas. You know, so obviously service and support is absolutely critical. Training is absolutely critical. You know, we'll often work with an organization where we commit to giving them insights into our development process. So we might get our design teams and engineers involved with them. And, you know, they all have to make that commitment. So the, the important thing about when you're managing a partnership is selling the big picture to every, at every level within your own organization and making sure that each element of it touches the right part of the partnership and maintains that commitment for the time, for the, for the long period. And, and we're pretty good at that. You know, I think that's why our relationships do last a long time because we, we do make sure that our, you know, that we try and fulfill that, but we, you know, we're never, we're not always perfect. In fact, we're never perfect. There's always more that we could do, but there are always challenges and, and reasons as to why maybe you can't do it quite the way that you hoped. That's a great learning for me personally, hopefully for others as well. You're emphasizing the focus on what you get right internally. Yeah, yeah, everyone would expect, okay, if we're going to talk about working with a new partner, we need to make sure that we share information internally. But that sounds like it's really, really critical for you as a company. It's actually, every everyone's really got to understand we're now servicing this person that's going to be a great partnership, but it's going to rely on all of us doing our job. And and like, why, why is this relationship important for them? Why is it important for us? Investing that time and getting all of that right internally, instead of always just thinking about how do I convince this partner all the benefits that they can get from being in partnership with us? If that makes sense. Yes, yes, and and you know, I guess a really good example of that, and you know, partnerships have changed over the twenty years that I've been doing it. You know, the type of partnerships, and you know, as I say, the majority of them have been, and to a certain extent, will always be purely transactional. But as I said, you know, we're trying to add more to the value of the partnership. And then there are some that have trans, if you like, they've transformed from being what was initially a transactional one to one that has become far deeper and far more connected uh, with a much, much longer term and a much bigger vision. And those are the ones that I've really enjoyed working with. And, you know, a really good example of that would be, you know, our partnership with the, with the Lynx Trust at St Andrews. You know, we started that. In fact, it was one of the reasons why I was brought on to Toro back in 1999 was we just signed our first uh, partnership with the Lynx Trust. And, and uh, along with we'd equally just signed a partnership with the European Tour, which has also gone on for, for 20 years. Two big accounts. So we suddenly realized actually as an organization, you know, a little bit like I referred to a moment ago. Once you've done the deal, you've actually got to support the deal. You've got to support the partnership. And so they needed somebody to have a focus on that and not just be involved in day-to-day -day, you know, sales activities. So that's why I came on board as the corporate accounts manager for Europe. And that relationship with the Lynx Trust has grown you know, in each five-year cycle that we renewed. And, and back in sort of 2017, they, they decided there was, a, there was a change of management at, at the Lynx Trust, new CEO, and, and he felt that rather than just turn the wheel and just do it again, that they needed to look at the whole market again, they needed to be sure, but they wanted something much greater than just purely what we'd been doing before. So we went through that process. We were successful, which was great. And they said to us, we don't want to do this just for another five years. We want to do it for multiple years. So they and we committed to a multi-year, multi-cycle commitment 
the reason for that is that we wanted to have the time to think about some of the deeper issues rather than just which product to do which part of the golf course and how much are they going to pay for it. So that, I think, was really interesting. And it's the sort of thing that Toro really likes to do. We just signed now a similar uh, relationship with Pebble Beach. You know, again, they've, they've asked for something. They've seen what we've done at St Andrews, as have others. And, and think, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, we want to, we don't want to have to go through this process every five years. We want to actually have a long-term partnership and build on it in some key areas. You know, I talked about, you know, working with our design teams, you know, the Lynx Trust are very heavily involved and, and speak regularly with our product development team in, 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 our, in our headquarters in Minneapolis. They travel both ways. You know, we come over to them when we, and likewise, they come to us you know, at, at all levels of their organization. We deal, talk a lot about environmental sustainability and we're doing a lot with them on that area as well. So, you know, I think that's really interesting how, how people look at those partnerships now with those organized sorts of organizations like that. And that's really important to us. Brilliant. So let's just talk a bit more about partnership models. Let's look at a slightly different angle then. There's, if we look right across the golf industry, across all the different sectors, some may argue that the partnership models seem quite obvious and generic in some cases. Have you seen any collaborations, though, that perhaps even outside of your own company at the moment that have had a high impact and that have kind of broken the mold in terms of partnership working? And, you know, some of the commercial deals, maybe it's changed in recent years, but some of the commercial deals do seem potentially quite a low level. And we're sort of wondering, will we ever get to a point where some partnerships could become sizable enough that they could really affect change? And there seems to be quite a lot of box ticking potentially in some of the, the partnership deals that we see out there in the industry. Does any of that resonate with you? Does any of it frustrate you? Um, yes, I guess to a certain extent. But, you know, the size of the deal that, you know, an individual club might do with a supplier is is one thing, you know, and they're, and they're relatively small because the businesses are relatively small let's be honest you know although of course any golf club investing in a fleet of equipment it's probably the biggest investment they're going to make since they built the golf course in the first place and it's a repeating one you know it's every five years every six years seven years whatever their replacement cycle is and every time they're going to be investing three four five hundred thousand you know, pounds, euros, dollars, whatever, whatever the cycle requires. So it's still a very big investment for them. Uh, and for some of them, it's, it's a change in their business structure and model, which is, which is life-changing for them as an organisation. Many golf courses, remember, will have just bought the occasional bit of equipment when it broke down and, and, and never really planned for it. Now you've got 70 to 80% of all deals being done with lease arrangements, which require regular turnarounds probably every three or five years. So you've got suddenly a much better strategy for investment. So at that level, you know, they are what they are. As I've, as I've mentioned, you know, moving into bigger, longer term relationships like the one we have with St. Andrew's Lynx Trust is that broke the mold. That, that definitely broke the mold. Um, and we're seeing other organizations look at that and say, yes, we understand why that would be good for us. If you go outside of that and look at some of the, the broader sort of relationships that could be put in place, many of them are based around consumer companies, companies in other sectors wanting to use golf as a 
vehicle to, to, to develop their own brand exposure and things like that. So that's why you'll get, you know, financial houses, you'll get big tech companies, you'll get big consumer brands investing in whether it be a golf tournament or whether it be, you know, the FedEx Cup or, or something like that. The question is whether that's, you know, so there you've got lots of money, but the money's being poured into one piece of the, the bigger picture. You know, it's being put into the marketing dollars, it's being put into the players, the, the prize funds and things like that. Is it really changing the game? No, not really. In fact, some would say it's detrimental in some respects uh, to the sort of the development of the game. Although they all, you know, they're all looking to find ways to put some of that money into grassroots, which of course is great. And we, you know, we do need that. I think the things that, you know, the RNA are talking about now, you know, they've got their new project, which they're working on at, in, in Glasgow, this, this idea of a community golf hub, that's going to be interesting. Will that be a game changer? Maybe not on its own, but it's certainly something in its, in, its, in its way which will contribute to that development, which I think is a good thing. And then really it's about, you know, the development of the game itself and, 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 and who has that responsibility and who's going to keep investing in it. And those partnerships are probably multifarious. We probably need many different groups involved in those to really affect change. Not one single partnership is never going to do it because it's not going to address all that, all issues and all, all elements of, of the, um, you know, of, of the situation. I'm not sure if that answered the question or not, but it's a very broad question. So it's a difficult question. And it's one that we talk about a lot and have done actually for going back, even Adam and I, um, a year, a year and a half, because of the areas of the industry that I traditionally worked in has been a lot of the development and participation type area and coaching areas. Uh, and Adam has, as you know, sat outside of that, but has a great overview globally, really, across so many different sectors of the industry. Um, but he's he's able to look at it from a, a different lens and see, he sort of saying to me, the challenge that you're facing with such and such a federation or a PGA in a country somewhere, I mean, the reality is that they just don't have enough money to do to move things forward. And in some cases, I'm sitting here quite frustrated because I'm saying five grand or 10 grand there to help them do this project helps them set up one of the building blocks of their foundation that they need to grow the game long term and they can't even find that investment. Um, but they're literally just starting the game in that country. So he's, you know, he said to me a year and a half ago, why isn't there investment fund for golf? I mean, there's investment funds for so many other industries right now. Maybe that's something that the golf industry should be looking at. And it's there is actually someone starting to look at it and from a sort of private investment point of view that we've just discovered. Um, and they actually have worked outside of the golf industry and the music industry and have a fascinating sort of model that they're trying to look at just now. But my sort of frustration to an extent has been I think that the development, the word golf development, the departments of work for golf development in governing bodies are almost viewed as philanthropic. It's like whatever money's left over will go into the development budget to then grow the game. And I don't personally, I think there is another way to look at doing it because that doesn't really help people plan for the long term. If they only find out, we'll get another couple of grand for a year's funding for the next year, another mm. couple of grand mm. for the following year. And when you look at the industry from the outside, you probably think there's a whole lot of money floating around in that industry. It's a very, very, in many areas, it's a very wealthy industry. Is there not another way that you could look at doing some of these things from a financial perspective? Is, is there not some sustainable business models for a business person who might want to build, you know, 
family-focused, entertaining introductory golf centres next to capital cities in some of these new countries. Uh, it's a big, big question and it's a big topic, but yeah, that, that, that's kind of why well, I was digging into and, that and area there. Just the, is, are some of these partnership deals that we see, is there anyone that, that's going to break out and say, can we create a completely different partnership model and bring 10 people together to do something really innovative that's not really been done in the industry before? Well, I, th I think there may well well be, and, and that's where the entrepreneurial spirit will, will come through at some point, I guess. But again, the, if you're not if you're not impacting government strategy and, and decisions, if you're not impacting you know governing bodies decisions about how the game is 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 organized and, and managed, then you know you're only going to go so far and you're also only going to really affect a relatively small part of the game or in a location and it will be business driven, which, which is fine and, and there's no reason why you know a good example I suppose would be, you know, top golf, you know, that has been a disruptor that has that has added something to the game, even though it's not the game in its traditional format. But it's it's shown that there is an interest in that style of, of, of golf participation. And it's a massive revenue generator, although obviously it needs a big investment. I think the other piece is where does golf sit in terms of society as in, in its entirety? And if you can make a stronger link with the wider community who are not currently invested in the game to see the value in some form of golf participation and that being driven by government policy and investment. And I think particularly around the whole health, physical and mental piece, um, which to be fair to the RNA, they've been working very hard on and many others have. You know, I think that is a space that really could be developed and could change the way that golf is seen by the wider society. You know, social prescribing is a term which is being used now. But of course, it start, you know, golf is being used as one of the many activities that people can go and try in what some form or another to help them with either a physical or a, or a mental uh, well-being uh, issue. But of course, that goes back to the 1930s. You know, golf was used in the 1930s by doctors as a way to get people out of the house to get them you know, more mobile and also, you know, to free their thoughts a little bit. Some of that related to things that happened after the First World, you know, First World War and again after the Second World War. So, you know, this isn't new. We've just forgotten about it. So is that, well, it's not a case of is that, that is a way that we could change the relationship of golf with society and also maybe change the type of partnerships that get developed on the back of it. Looking at innovation, it's a word that we've used quite a lot in the early months of Gather and trying to understand what it really means, what it means within the golf industry, what it might mean for the future of the golf industry. Why do you think that innovation and golf rarely end up in the same sentence? We're maybe seeing it a little bit more recently, but your space in the industry is hugely innovative and some might say it maybe goes under the radar a little bit the innovating innovative thinking that's required in your team and in other companies that work in your sector in order to just keep pushing the technology that's probably the type of thinking that could be quite valuable in other sectors of the golf industry too which i would argue probably need some of that mm. what's your thoughts on this but well, you know it's, it's innovation and technology and sustainability these are all terms that are getting used in every form of, of, of society whether in every form of business and everything because we all realize that 
you know, you have to keep innovating to keep moving forward. If you're not innovating, you know, you're standing still and therefore really going backwards. So, and as a company, that's a huge part of our mantra, if you like, and we invest more in innovation and R&D than anybody else in our sector. And we do that for a reason. We always have done. And, and a lot of our own internal drivers are based around revenue generated from innovative new products that have been introduced in the last couple of years at any given time. And that drives the company forward all the time. But why, why is that important? And, and why has that also been successful is because we keep looking to see, you know, what not just what are the problems of today, but what are the problems that are likely to, or the challenges that are likely to be there in five and 10 years time? Because that's the time frame that it takes to really develop anything new. You know, you can't just say, okay, next year, we're just going to do bring out that product and that will solve that problem. You can't do that. You have to have thought about it five years before to go through the design and development process. Because, you know, you're building big things, you know, you're not you're not even just building something like a mobile phone, you know, a phone, a smartphone. You know, those smartphones that we see being turned out every year can be designed and manufactured relatively quickly, you know, subject to availability of components like everybody else at the moment. But, um, you know, so it's, it's a slightly different world. But, you know, we are also being driven by some different um, factors, particularly environmental or regulatory across the world which require us to be innovative you know the fact that water is being restricted quite rightly and managed very carefully across the world requires us to design better managed irrigation systems you know and the fact that you know we can show that we can reduce a, a golf course's use of water by 30 percent by putting in a, a, a new irrigation system compared to what they probably have had for the last 20 years is moving that in that in the right direction likewise with the move to um you know battery and and non and, and non-fossil fuel um traction units and and the like you know again that is something which is being driven by other things outside of the industry but are impacting the industry and we've reacted to that and we've just brought out the first ride on greensmoor fully electric and there's lots more to come because that's what the, the customer is now asking for that but equally society is asking for that. So our innovation is driven by these things. Golf as a game is being driven by some slightly different things. The challenge of, of participation being obviously one of them based around you know, other things that people could be doing. So the technology that's been introduced, you know, mentioned Top Golf earlier, that you know, there are other things as well that are just bringing in, you know, esports is a is a massive one, of course, and we, we mustn't ignore that. And golf has a has always had a, a place in there, but there's more to come, I'm sure. Virtual reality, I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, where does that play? What role does that play in all of this? Um, so I think there is innovation to come. Um, I guess the challenge will come, or the innovation will come more quickly as the challenge becomes greater and the financial implications become greater. Because that actually, in the end, we have to be honest, is really what drives change. You know, it's, it's if there's either money being lost or money to be made, somebody's going to innovate something and that that's just the nature of of the society that we that we live in it's up to us as a, you know we're in the industry in the broadest sense um and, and governing bodies and the like you know to see the big picture and where does it all come together how does it all come together um you know we haven't talked about the environment yet but that's a massive piece in this and we mustn't you know we can't ignore it because it's probably the biggest driver impacting us 
and golf in the broader sense beyond everything. You know, and, and that's something which we've really got to think very hard about. So, you know, we've we partnered with GEO a long time ago, we've been a patron with GEO, and, and that's good for us, but it's also hopefully good for them because they get an industry perspective on some of the things that they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in conversations I've had with them over many years, you know, they've refined their thinking around the practicalities and we've it's helped us understand where we need to be going to really make sure we're helping to deal with some of the challenges that our that our customers and also the, the wider society are facing. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It sounds one of the questions we talked about before was, you know, is your is your sector of the golf industry being disrupted more by the world around us changing than it's being disrupted by the innovators who are coming up with new solutions? And it, it sounds like it's a bit of both, but primarily maybe it's it's the world around us changing. And mm. just thinking about you mentioned there about the environment and one of the things that I picked up on recently, and you probably saw it, was that BBC Sport article. And there's obviously been a lot of things about climate change, in, in particularly in the most recent years. But there was an article, it was quite a short one, but interesting last week. And they were looking at this feature of all these different sports. How might different sports change by 2050, depending on you know what happens with climate change? How, what, how much at the moment is your team spending in terms of resources, thinking about what the world's going to look like in maybe just 30 years with golf courses around the world. I mean, is that a major focus for you at the moment? Well, as I say, I mean, it, it's it's part of the conversation in everything that we're doing. Obviously, you know, we're, we're working on multiple different things at different, you know, at any given time, you know, because these projects take so long. But we're very aware of, you know, the challenges that are going on in the world and where that might lead. And so, like I've said, you know, if we... If we just see the way golf courses have changed in certain parts of the world, particularly when you look in in the southern parts of the United States, where, you know, courses are much more restricted in the turf areas, the maintained turf areas, obviously anything that's being built now going to be built out in Saudi Arabia and parts of the Middle East, exactly the same. So, you know, our focus very much is on trying to play our part in, in managing those resources and the resource inputs as much as we possibly can. You know, equally, you know, you've got um, grass development companies, seed development companies who are producing grasses, grass types today, which would have been unheard of 20 years ago. And in fact, you know, I remember the day when Pasvalum first came out onto the market, which was the salt tolerant golf uh, uh, grass for golf. And it's now, you know, it was very much an unknown, uh, you know, product at the time. Would it really perform as it as it was hoped it would? And of course, not, not only has it done, but they've improved it still in that, you know, we're seeing golf courses with tournaments being played on Paspalum all the time now. I think if I'm right in saying Kiowa Island was, was Paspalum, so, you know, which it wasn't when it first was built. So, you know, good case in point. So, you know, there are these developments being made and, and the environment is driving them, you know, with that. So will the golf courses change? Well, of course, you know, the whole argument about distance, et cetera, yes. Um, I think that is inevitable as well. How the governing bodies decide to actually do it, we will see. But I think inevitably there will be some form of change there. Will we get to the urban golf extreme environment, a sort of extreme example that, that the BBC talked about? Well, possibly, but I don't think that that will mean that there won't be other, tr- the more traditional games still out there. There just might be the less of it. 
And so depending on where golf, how golf is seen and going back to that whole society thing is what is the value that golf is giving to the wider society? Forget the private members golf club, but think about what golf offers to the broader society. If it, if it can justify its place and it can manage its business well, then it will have a place. But if it can't, then there's always the risk, of course, that it will get pushed to one side and it will become a minority sport again and it will actually eventually just disappear, except for the very few who can afford to do it. I think you've hit the nail on the head with a really key point at the end there. I know that's something that Martin Slumbers has talked about a few times when they, they brought out the playbook a few years ago with the RNA, but I think we're really starting to see the... Severity is probably the wrong word, but the 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 critical nature of what they are talking about with making sure that golf is relevant in 20, 50 years time, because it doesn't. It, sometimes it's quite hard to look that far ahead unless you're one of those one of the thinkers who's good at doing these kind of things. But you know, I look back and go, "Flash, wait a minute, I'm 40 now. I remember I was playing golf, you know, frequently all the time when I was 20, and it didn't seem quite that long ago. So it'll be another 20 years, and it'll be a flash of a, an eye, and we'll be there." And in that case, it's not that golf needs to introduce or, or change the uh, experiences and the environments so that more people can enjoy the game, so that more people can get health benefits out of it, so you can bring more families in because it's a nice thing to do. It's starting to sound like it's actually fairly critical if the sport's going to really survive in maybe 50 years' time because you know all those things that you've described there we're going to be the world is going to be a completely different place from a climate perspective, from a uh, technology perspective. We've got to make sure that we're relevant in that, and the, the health benefits are probably always going to be there from from golf. And um, so, if that requires us to change the courses, environments, the clubhouses, the experiences, in order to make sure that people can still see the benefits and get those benefits, then that's going to be critical. So, just to tie things together, the obvious question is. When are we going to see robots? And is the agronomy <laughs> world just going to see less human capital and more machine automation? Well, obviously, that technology is being developed at a very rapid pace now. And, and I can probably say with a little bit more confidence than I probably did the first time 10 years ago, yes, it's coming and it's just around the corner. Well, it really is. And I think you're going to see that. I mean, there is, the technology is already there. You know, the technology is out there. Um, we've been working on it for 20 years, uh, as have many other companies as well. In some spaces, you've seen it come out already. But up until now, the benefits of it have not balanced with the costs associated with it. So therefore, for most scenarios, it hasn't made sense. Um, that's going to change. and It's going to change very quickly. And I think within the next couple of years, you're going to see a number of autonomous products coming out onto the market for the golf space. Obviously, we've already seen it in the consumer space. The challenge is, ironically, somewhat less about the technology. It's more about the society acceptance and the framework within which they'll operate. And that's exactly the same as with self-driving cars. You know, you've seen so much being done with the big brands that are, that are trying to find a way to get that, break that space open. The problem is that at the moment, society hasn't quite grasped the implications for it and the challenges and the dangers associated with it. You know, if you've got a big golf course, maintenance, you know, turf maintenance machine out there with, you know, blades, 
in a public area where there are people around, there's a risk associated with that, no matter how much you mitigate it and no matter how safe that technology is in theory. And there isn't an insurance framework for that yet, as there isn't for cars either. So, you know, we'll see. But, but that being said, the technology is coming and it's coming very quickly. How will it impact golf operations? Well, some people say, well, it just it's the end of the greenkeeper, which, of course, it, it won't be. You know, what will happen is you'll get these products being used in areas where you need they're time consuming and you need maybe still some you need precision, but they're time consuming. And therefore, they make sense to try and find a way to automate them. But what that will mean is that the person that used to sit on that machine can now go off and do something that requires greater experience, greater input, more detailing and more oversight. So what I think will happen is that you'll see golf courses that are currently only got maybe half a dozen members of staff. They might have a couple of autonomous machines. They'll keep their staff. They'll be able to do other jobs and the whole standard will raise, which is, you know, you know that's a good prospect for golf clubs. Part of the other thing is you need to remember that there are parts of the world where employment is more important than productivity. So you won't see these machines in some parts of the world where currently you've got greenkeeping teams of 30, 40 or 50 people. And they obviously they're out there. And the, the reason they're out there is because labor is relatively cheap, but they've got an employment issue and they need people employed. So will they want to put in an expensive or, you know, robot to, to do something which maybe means that they don't need three or four members of staff to do that job? So that's an interesting one to, to think of as well. Yeah, so. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. And it's um, it's the opposite of what frustrates me a little bit when I was in the UK and up until recently and going to supermarkets because I'm now in a village in Greece and there's people that serve you. And I was starting to realise that back in the UK, I would go up to the tills and I was doing the self-checkout, which I understand why people like it, but there's still a feeling for me of, yeah, and I like someone serving me and I like the fact that it's giving more people jobs, but it's pure, probably a whole d debate and detailed subject in itself, but it's an interesting direct transfer across into the golf industry that you've mentioned there with greenkeepers which I hadn't thought about but you're not going to have in the you know you look at the driverless car scenario not everybody is what going to want to have a driverless car some people like to drive you know if I want a driverless car or me not driving I call it an uber yes yes you know, for me that's a driverless car because I'm not doing the driving yeah you know do I want to have a driverless car on my driveway that I just well I don't know not yet <laughs> exactly yeah I'm not sure I'm ever going to want to either okay cool well um, yeah that's been really interesting Andy and I'm conscious of our time here is there any final points or topics that you think we've just kind of touched on a thread and you want to pull it out a little bit more before we finish I think probably what the conversation sort of really sort of highlights is is how complex our business is you know, and it's one of the things that I absolutely love about it. You know, I'm very fortunate both in the area that I work in and also, you know, the job that I have within it, that I get to see lots of different elements of the business that we're in, as well as the game. In fact, it's funny when I, you know, I talk to members of the PGA, you know, sometimes it frustrates me a little bit. They focus, have focused in the past. And I would say that in the past, because I think they've changed their focus now, which I think is great. So much about the game itself that they've forgotten about what supports the game. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and what supports the game is everything that we do and everything that everybody else is doing to actually make sure that there's a golf course there in the first place for the game to be played on. Mm -hmm. And it's so important that those two elements come together and are talking to each other so that they, what happens next is, is going to be right for everybody. You know, that's a challenge for golf course architects and operators and governing bodies and suppliers and, and, and everybody. You're here. Yeah, I think that's a good way to conclude it. I, I mean, that's certainly something I mentioned even last night in one of the mentor rooms that we did for Gather. Uh, there was a young person who's one of the members uh, was in the mentor room with Mark Asplund, who you'll know, and looking at potential career pathways in, in the industry, really desperate to work in the industry. And I said, well, if you told me six months ago when we launched Gather that within six months you'll have at least 40 different distinct sectors within the golf industry within the membership i would have told you i don't think there is that many and then someone more experienced than me it might even be you when we spoke in roulette said um well over time you'll realize there's even more than that so oh, yeah. it, it's incredible the industry that we work in and the number of different people that can right that reminds i go diverse ways i go back to a comment my father said to me when I was, I don't know, whatever it was, 16, 17 years old, and I was trying to think what on earth I might do going forward, and I had absolutely no idea, and I would never have thought about what I'm doing now as something. He, he said to me, well, for every job you can think of, there's at least five you've never even heard of, let alone, you know, that might be interesting for you. So, you know, just extrapolate that uh, in every, every walk of life. And I think there are more types of jobs available today. I mean, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about in terms of what are the impacts in terms of bringing some of this new technology on into how golf courses will have to be operated. You know, when you bring robots in, when you bring smart products um, and, and sensors and all this sort of thing, you need a different type of employee. Yeah. You know, you're going to need a mechanic who is more of an electronics expert than somebody that knows about en engines won't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so where's the training for that? What type of facility are we going to need for, the, for that? And how are we going to attract the right caliber of person into the industry to be able to look after these, um, these new technologies? You know, that's a completely different sector. It is. And a really important thing I hadn't thought of before. And I mean, I suppose it's, it overlaps or not overlap. It relates also to other sectors of the industry. When you take, you know, digital stuff is so important now. So marketing experts have had to either tool up and scale up in digital the digital world or they're bringing in people who just love the digital world who actually mm -hmm. aren't from golf and can offer speed uh, outside thinking creative ideas to totally maximize so golf is competing with other industries for that talent mm -hmm. so golf in all of its different le levels has to understand what it has to offer yeah. that's different to what other companies or other industries can offer you know, and that's never been truer than it is now when it comes to, for instance, one of the hardest jobs to fill in any golf course will be the mechanic. Because the mechanic is a very specialized person and they are very highly looked for in the car industry. So if you've got a local BMW dealership or somebody, another dealership, which is offering 50% more money, guess where the mechanic's going to go? Mm-hmm. You know, so the challenge for golf has always been what is it offering in its lifestyle as well as it's from a financial perspective that's going to attract the right caliber of, of person into the jobs yeah. that really matter. Yeah, 
And I guess the BMW mechanic doesn't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning every day as well. So. And he's working in a really nice, clean environment. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's got everything around him and he's, and, he's, and he's looked after very well. So, you know, that's an interesting challenge for golf. And, and when we move into the world, the, the world of, of electronics, electronics, autonomous, you know, renewable energy, blah, 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 all these other things, well, you're going to need a standard of education or at least an, an engagement in a slightly different way. And we need to be able to attract those people. So we're going to have to be able to pay them accordingly as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. Great insight. Thank you very much for that. That's definitely food for thought. I appreciate that, Andy. And really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating. And, no, I've uh, enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Colin. Really appreciate it.